If you would, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at two other passages. Um, So if you also want to turn to Matthew chapter 8, keep your finger there, and Luke chapter 5. In this series, we've been looking at the matter of miracles, seeking to learn what they signify, what do they mean, what are they pointing to. In the Gospel of John, as we've seen, instead of using the word miracles, he uses the word signs. That is to say, they signify something. When we look at the miracles in the ministry of Jesus, I think they provide us signs. They help us to understand the reality of miracles and what they mean in our lives. Last week, we looked at the first miracle that Jesus performed. It was at a wedding the wedding in Cana of Galilee, turning water into wine. And from this miracle, we saw the fulfilling of a promise of the coming of Messiah, the redemption of marriage from a power relationship, if you wish, to that of mutual partnership, but also pointing ahead to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we saw the shift from the old covenant. We have these six stone jars of water for purification to the new covenant, the Messiah has come. But in conversations afterwards, it came up that, and it's something I should have mentioned, there is a real danger when we look, when we take this approach to say, what does this particular miracle mean? It's the same danger we find when we look at parables. And I don't know if you remember when we began studying parables some years ago. Regarding the parable of the Good Samaritan, Augustine, one of the church fathers, argued that the man who fell among thieves was Adam, Jerusalem, he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, was the heavenly city, and Jericho was the moon, which apparently stands for our mortality. The robbers who beat him were the devil and his angels, who tried to strip him of his immortality. The priest and the Levite are the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament. The Samaritan is Jesus. And the binding of his wounds was for the restraint of sin. The oil and the wine the comfort of hope and encouragement to work. The donkey is the incarnation. I'm not sure how that works with the Good Samaritan being Christ. The inn is the church. Um, The next day is the resurrection of Jesus. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul, interestingly. And the two silver coins that are given are the two commandments to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors ourselves. I'll go out on a limb and say, this is not what Jesus intended in telling this parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the same way with miracles. If we're not careful, we'll just go way, way too far and make them mean something that they should not mean. And so, as we go through this, I will try to be careful. If at certain points you feel the need to rein me in, feel free to do so. But I I do think these miracles mean something. They point to something. They're trying to teach us something, and that's what we are trying to learn as we go through this. I would just remind you that these miracles really happened. Not so with the parables. The parables are stories. But these miracles really happen. And even though they teach us something, they in fact do happen. They're not just some type of morality plays or like, oh, that's what that means. They in fact really did happen. Today, and perhaps for the rest of the series, we will look at more than one miracle each Sunday, but put them into categories, into a particular category. For the sermon today, the category, 
and this is the way I've arranged them. This is not the way they're arranged in Scripture at all, so don't feel like this is inspired somehow. It's to help us through this study. The miracles we will look at today are the miracles that are requested by one person or persons for someone else. That is, as we will see in a moment, the royal official asked that Christ, that Jesus would heal his son. The centurion asked that Jesus would heal his servant and so on. Um, the Lord willing, next Sunday, we will look at a similar category, but here it is when the person in need requests and Jesus responds with a miracle. But today, it's when others request for someone that Jesus would intervene. A lot of miracles that Jesus performed don't fit into this category. The one we looked at last week, changing water to wine. Nobody said, Jesus, will you please turn the water into wine? Mary did tell him they're out of wine. That's sort of a statement, but it was no specific request. Um, when Jesus fed the thousands, and we'll look at this on several occasions, um, the disciples asked Jesus to send the people away, not to feed them. They don't say perform a miracle so he can feed all of these people, but that in fact is what happens. When he calms the storm, they don't ask him to do that. They just say, don't you care that we're about to die? And when he raised the widow's son, um, they were taking the body out to be buried and the widow who had lost her son didn't say, could you please raise him from the dead? Jesus is the one who stops, who intervenes and raises him. And the same is true with Lazarus as well in John chapter 11. There are more that I hope we will see as we go along. But the second miracle that Jesus performed, according to John, fits into the category today of a miracle requested or healing requested for someone else. Look, if you would, in John chapter 4, beginning at verse number 46. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. That's one o'clock in the afternoon. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Just some quick facts and then we'll move on and then we'll sort of tie this all together. John tells us specifically that this is the second miracle that Jesus performed. And it happened in the same place where he did the first one, that is Cana of Galilee. The one requesting... Uh, Healing for his son as a royal official. We're not told any more than that. His son is near death. The man begs Jesus to come to his house to heal his son. And Jesus' response could be seen as harsh, rather harsh, as it was with Mary in John chapter 2. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him you will never believe. The question we might ask is, is Jesus speaking about this man or about the people around him? I don't think it's directed specifically at the man. Jesus is now back in his home province of Galilee. Uh, 
And it seems that people want him to do miracles as he has done elsewhere. So this is his second miracle in Galilee. They don't want any preaching, you know, keep the commercial. We don't want that. They just some, they want him to do the healing. We saw this uh, in his hometown of Nazareth, that first Sabbath he was back home. The man is not dissuaded. I think this is important. Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus tells him his son will live. The man takes Jesus at his word. He believes what Jesus tells him. And the son is healed at the very hour that Jesus said he was fine. The result is, one might say, well, that's easy. The boy was healed. But it's more than that. He and all his household believed. Okay. Now, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. After the Sermon on the Mount, which ends in chapter 7, we have two miracles in chapter 8. Actually, three. But the first one is the leper who comes and asks Jesus to heal him. The Lord willing, we'll see this next Sunday. Um, But the second one is the centurion. It begins in verse number five. Matthew 8, verse number five. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into darkness, into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Things to consider about this. As with the miracle we just looked at in John chapter 4, the person speaking to Jesus is a person of authority and position. John chapter 4, it's a royal official. Here it is a centurion. The relationship here is not father-son, as in the first miracle that we looked at, but of master and servant. I don't know if you notice this, but technically the centurion does not ask. There is no request that is made as such. He simply states a fact. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. By the way, if you look at the previous miracle here in chapter 8, the leper does the same thing. The leper doesn't say, heal me. He says, if you want to, you can do this. Unlike the royal official, the centurion does not require Jesus' presence. Uh, The royal official wanted him to come to Capernaum from Cana to take care of his son. But here the centurion says, um, listen, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and he will be healed. The centurion sees Jesus as a man of authority, just as he is. Um, This fits in line with, by the way, what we hear at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he, had, he taught as one having authority, not as the teachers of the law. 
The man understood the dynamics of authority. It's something I think that people usually skip over. The man doesn't say, I'm a man of authority. He says, I'm a man under authority. And I have people under me. In other words, he understands that there's a hierarchy of things. He is a centurion. He is probably an Italian, a Roman. He's not a Jew. He understands how these things work. I tell somebody, you do this, and he does it. Somebody go over there and do that, and they do that as well. He understands the dynamics of authority. Jesus comments on the man's faith, that he has not seen such faith among the Jewish people, the people, the children of the kingdom. Now if you would turn to Luke chapter 5. We will look at the third miracle today. In Luke chapter 5. Beginning in verse number 18. This is the paralytic with the four friends. See, chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came bearing a paralytic on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him through the mat, on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them and took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Things to consider. First of all, the audience. Uh, Luke really goes out of his way to tell us that it's the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who come from every town in Galilee, from Judea and from Jerusalem. Jesus could not have been unaware of this. He must have known that these people were there. The four friends cannot find a way to get their friend, who is paralyzed, a paralytic, into Jesus. So they disassemble part of the roof, the tile roof, take it apart, and lower their friend in front of Jesus, right in front of Jesus. They do not request a miracle. So one could argue this doesn't fit nicely into this category of created. They simply lower their friend in front of Jesus. And because he's paralyzed, we would assume he would not be able to ask for it either. He's simply there, paralyzed on a mat in front of Jesus. Jesus responds in a way we do not expect. He says, your sins are forgiven. I don't think this is necessarily what the friends were looking for. The religious leaders are scandalized by this. Um, only God can forgive sins. Who is this man speaking blasphemy? And then Jesus makes the point simply enough, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up, take your bed and walk? 
for some reason this seems puzzling to some people, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because who knows if it in fact has happened. But if you say to somebody who's paralyzed, get up, take your bed and walk, you know, either they get up or they don't. Either you're telling the truth, you have the power, or you don't. But Jesus wants to confirm that he does in fact have the power to forgive sins. So then he does say to the man, take your bed, get up and walk. Jesus has authority to heal. He has authority to forgive. The man is in fact healed, takes his mat goes home praising God. So what do these miracles signify? What do they teach us? What do they point to? Let me suggest to you three lessons that we learn from these three miracles. First of all, there were conversations. Um, we saw when we began this series, most people want miracles apart from any theological context or any theological conversation. But in the miracles, as Jesus performs them, we see that what he has to say is very important. When he went home to his hometown in Nazareth, they wanted miracles. They didn't want to hear about him being the Messiah. In fact, they tried to kill him as a result. They want the miracle. They don't want, if you wish, the commercial, the theological content. And I would argue this is still the case today. I think even someone who does not believe in God will pray for a miracle when something is happening. If your son is sick and near death, would you not in fact pray to God that God would heal him? And would you not in fact believe that God could do that? Yes, but then I'm not sure we want to go beyond that. I don't think, well, this means that God is the Lord of all, which means he's the Lord of your life, which means you're supposed to obey. Yeah, that I, people don't want to get into that. Instead, I think we see the miracles as miraculous, or we see the miraculous as magical, that somehow Jesus waves a magic wand and people are healed. No, conversations are required. And the conversations are not all the same. This is not a boilerplate thing where Jesus says something, a person responds, Jesus heals. Uh, with the royal official, Jesus points out that the people of Galilee are looking for a sign. They don't want any content. In the case of the centurion, the centurion talks about authority and Jesus talks about his faith. Something that he had not seen among his own people. In the case of the paralytic, the four friends don't necessarily converse with Jesus. Jesus, in fact, gives sort of a monologue in which he says that your sins are forgiven. And then he, to show that he has the authority to forgive sins, he tells the man to get up and walk. Just a side note here. Some have suggested um, that in this last case, there's a connection between the man's condition and some sin or sinful behavior in his life. That he had done something wrong and the paralysis that had happened on him was a result of that. We're not told that. Uh, and that would be reading into the text something that may or not be there. In any case, I find it interesting, I don't know if you caught it, when Jesus speaks to the man, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. I mean, Jesus, you are my friend. I am your friend and I forgive your sins. So the first thing is that there has to be conversation. There has to be theological content. We have to learn something when the miraculous happens. The second thing, the second lesson we should take from this is the authority of Jesus. If there is any doubt about the power or authority of Jesus, 
it should be removed by the, these actions, these miracles that he performs. The matter of authority doesn't come up directly with the royal official's son. It certainly does in the second too. First of all, with the centurion, uh, he brings, the centurion brings it up. He says, I know how this works. I'm a man under authority myself. I have people under me. You speak the word and it gets done. He understands that. In the case of the paralytic, the issue of whether or not Jesus had the authority to forgive sins comes up. That's why Jesus begins with that. And then he ends with healing the man. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, kept the record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The Lord Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and he has the power to forgive sins. Then the third lesson from these miracles, and it's probably what we would jump to first, and that is the place of faith. The royal official took Jesus at his word and went home. The centurion said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. With the four friends, Jesus saw their faith and he healed their friend. Faith means trusting, believing God. It is to be the mark of the life of a Christian. One writer put it this way. Faith is not simply the means through which a person becomes a Christian. It is the essential manner of the Christian life. This is how we are supposed to live our lives, trusting God moment by moment for everything that happens in our lives. We are children of the Reformation. We believe that we are saved by faith in what Jesus has done. We are justified by faith alone. But we're not simply children of the Reformation, we are also children of the modern age, which means we see everything as individualistic. It's all about me as an individual. And so faith, the gift of God, which brings us life, which is to direct our lives, is now seen as something very individual, very personal. It is my faith. I put my faith in Jesus. And then you put your faith in Jesus. And, and so we're basically a collection of individuals. Um, if you listen today to the promise of forgiveness, at least three times Peter says, you are the people of God. You didn't used to be a people, but now you are the people of God. As modern people, we don't think that way. We think more of ourselves as individuals. And when you add to that, forget the fact that we're living in the modern age, when you are sick, when you are afflicted, it tends to separate you. You tend to be isolated. Um, And even a family, if they have someone who is sick, that seems to separate them from other people. There is this very isolating nature of sickness and disease. All of this together means that when we see these things, we see our faith as individual. I don't think this is a biblical view of faith. In these three miracles that we have looked at today, we see people having faith for others. The royal official for his son, the centurion for his servant, and the four friends for their friend. Did you catch it as I read it? When Jesus saw their faith. We're not told anything about the man on the mat, whether or not he believed that Jesus could heal him. After all, he's paralyzed. But the friends believe. They have faith for their friend. 
I think it is in this third parable that we come to learn something truly significant about faith. As a people of God, we are people. We are here at Melrose, a congregation, not a collection of individuals. And as such, we can and we should believe for one another. I know it almost sounds heretical because we're so bound by the individualism of our age, but also the notion of personal faith in Jesus, which is important. I'm not discounting that. But we are to stand together and we are to believe and sometimes to believe for one another. Particularly when our circumstances make it so hard for us to believe. So imagine, and this is pure speculation, supposition on my part, that the paralytic man was not sure that Jesus could heal him. He can't do anything about it. He's paralyzed. But his friends believe. And because they believe, they take him to Jesus to be healed. They believe for him. And I would say this is true about the royal official. He believed for his son. And the centurion believed for his servant. We are the body of Christ, the people of God. Think about your body. What happens if you sprain your ankle or you break your ankle? Well, when one part of the body is injured, the rest of the body has to compensate for that. If you break your right ankle, then you have to rest more on your left. It isn't to say that the right ankle is no good and you want to get rid of it, amputate it. No. It means that the rest of the body pitches in if you wish. doesn't say, well, that weak leg, we don't need that. No, the rest of the body helps out. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens. And in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. There may be times in your life when you will say, Damon, I don't know if I believe anymore. To which we should all say, that's okay, we believe for you. And God, by his grace, will bring you out of that darkness. We are to believe for one another. If you put it all on yourself, what happens when you have those moments when you're not so sure, when you don't believe? That can be disaster. But when you're part of a congregation, a part of the body of Christ, we can go to one another and say, listen, I'm, I'm just not so sure anymore. We can embrace one another and say, that's okay. We believe for you. Like the four friends, like the centurion, like the royal official. One of the problems we have, and I don't know if this is just common to the modern ages, we don't tell each other this. We're uh, embarrassed. We don't want to admit to one another, yeah, um, I'm, I'm not so sure anymore. Or I'm having a really difficult time trusting in God. And as a result, we can't be there for you, so to speak, to say, listen, we believe for you. We're not called to be individuals. We're called to be the people of God. So, in these three miracles, we see the need for conversation and not simply shooting the breeze, just, you know, hanging out. But... um, And it doesn't necessarily have to be a conversation between the one suffering and those around him or her. So people of God are to be talking among themselves of what God, who he is and what he can and what he has done. The second thing is the authority of Jesus. 
That hasn't changed in the words of the hymn that we sang earlier today. Uh, Be still my soul, the winds and waves still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. It is the authority of Jesus that brings the miraculous. And thirdly, faith for others. We are to believe for one another. The other night, Guy and I watched King Lear, uh, the most recent version of it uh, with Anthony Hopkins as Lear. And in Act 3, toward the end, uh, a line, actually two, jumped out at me and I I looked it up, I googled it. Um, It's Edgar who's speaking. And in the modern text, this is what he says. The person who suffers alone suffers the most. Companions in sorrow alleviate our grief. We are to stand together in faith. We are to believe for one another as we go through life. And we are to trust that God will do what is best in each and every situation. He has the authority. Jesus has the authority. And he can do as he wishes. So as we go through this coming week, we should pray for one another. Hopefully we've talked to one another, but even if we haven't, and hold each other up in faith and say, I pray for this person, for this family. Don't know what's going on with them, but keep them. And if their faith has faltered, I believe for them. And as the people of God, may we stand together. Let's pray. Our Father, we like miracles. We want miracles to happen. We have seen them happen. We are grateful for that. But we tend to forget what they signify. That we need to be reminded through this who you are. There needs to be a conversation about your grace, your power, your tender mercies toward us. And we need to be reminded that it is the authority of Jesus that brings these miracles about. But above all, we are to see the place of faith. Not something that we can do on our own, it is a gift, but we are to help one another. We are to believe for one another. And as these people and these miracles we saw today, the royal official, the centurion, the four friends, they believed for the one who was in need. May we take this to heart. May we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Here we stand at the beginning of a new week, the first day of a new week. We don't know what the week has in store for us but you do you've already gone ahead you've already prepared the way for us may we pray for one another and hold each other in faith we do pray for Ken and Rory that you would give them wisdom with regard to their vehicle you are the source of all wisdom And so we hold them up to you. Give them wisdom. And for our brother Dan, we're so grateful for the wonderful report today. Continue to heal him. 
as we look forward to his birthday, the anniversary, we are so grateful for your grace. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.